of why is there no alternative for me is because we are being deterred from organizing in this way. We look at alternatives as things or projects that are big enough to match the magnitude of the system. But what was proven to us during street revolutionary time is that we cannot match the magnitude of the system. But the way we choose to organize and work with each other is practicing alternatives. This is Instant Coffee, a new podcast brought to you by the LSE Middle East Centre and produced by me, Nadine Almanasfi, and me, Ribal Sleiman Haider. On this episode, Sarah Salem talks to Rewa Sayer about resistance politics during a global pandemic. Sarah is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at LSE. Riwa is a feminist writer and researcher. She is editor-in-chief of Kahul, a journal for body and gender research produced in Beirut, Lebanon. We recorded this episode on the 3rd of August, a day before the explosion in Beirut. We decided to release it as is because we think it provides a good framework to understand what led to the explosion. Over to you, Sarah. Okay, hi uh, everyone. I'm really excited to be having this conversation with uh, Riwa, who's an amazing feminist scholar activist based in Lebanon. And we're basically going to talk a little bit about her work, about the contemporary context, and about um, hopefully lots of other things. So I thought that uh, we could get started by speaking a little bit about the moment that we find ourselves in, which is both kind of a very particular moment globally, but also a very particular moment in the context of Lebanon. So I wondered if you could speak a little bit about the intersection between kind of economic crisis, particularly in Lebanon, um, as well as kind of the global pandemic we're facing and kind of the rise of resistance politics, which of course was already taking place in Lebanon before the pandemic, and I guess has continued in some ways. Hi, Sarah. It's great to have this conversation with you. Uh, And I'm glad that we are finally able to have this conversation. It's quite fitting to uh, what we are talking about today, but we've had to move uh, recording this due to electricity cuts in Lebanon. So maybe a good starting point for this is to really talk about affect in the way, you know, it affects us, Uh, like in terms of despair, entrapment, existential questions, and then what this does in turn to our idea of a resistance project or resistance politics in general. Obviously, we are living a global pandemic that is further reducing mobility, but also particularly in the case of you know, uh, the nation state, Lebanon, and other contexts as well, what we are witnessing is complete economic collapse that has translated in hyperinflation, blackouts in terms of electricity, but also like the internet, a famine, loss of jobs. And this all goes back to the, you know, uh, the banking or economic uh, strategy of pegging a local currency, usually from the global south to the dollar, um, that eventually leads to collapse and devaluation because of global politics, mostly. And what we also witness is, you know, this idea of banks suddenly showing themselves as insidiously ruling uh, the economies that we navigate on a daily basis. 
And so for me, what this does at a moment like this one is to make me think about the tenacity of the project that we have come to know as nation states. And for me, this project is about power. It's about capitalist profits. It's about maintaining the interests of the few, the way we have seen in Lebanon. So when we as activists, as people on the left, when we speak of the state's failure, quote unquote, to do its job, what we are doing is taking this job at face value. It's assuming that a state's job is the well-being of citizens, quote unquote citizens, who adhere to a nationalist notion of citizenship in exchange of something else, like housing, healthcare, pension, decent living, etc. So what we are trying to do is to hold the state accountable on these fronts. But if we go back to look at it from a very, like, from a capital point of view, you know, from that perspective, nation states are a successful project. And even in the case of Lebanon, even in the case of total collapse, this project is working in maintaining the interests of the few again and again. I don't want to treat uh, all nation states as one and the same. In fact, <laughs> as we are living, like as, as part of our daily realities right now, the economic sanctions and collapse in many global South contexts are no short of an, an economic war that we are living and that are being played at this level of livelihood of affecting people's realities and material struggles. But what I'm trying to say here in terms of the point I'm making in terms of nation states is that resistance politics ultimately are about failing at being assimilated into this structure. And maybe this is kind of, you know, uh, it reminds me a bit of the notion of queer failure and what kind of vision and alternatives are we looking at or we are looking into. For me, it's an alternative that is queer, that is non-sectarian, that is anti-racist, that <laughs> does not understand the punitive system as accountability, and that is globally about dismantling those institutions, such as the police, the banks, in the way that we know them right now. And maybe to tie it a bit with what we have lived uh, in Lebanon in the past year, in a lot of ways, when we talk about resistance or revolution, we look at the moment, and in the case of Lebanon, it was, you know, we look at the beginning of it as October 17, we look at the end of it uh, as the moment protests stopped happening in a way that is regular in the public sphere. And so with the intersection of global pandemic, of economic crisis, of how is it that we organize, what it, this intersection does, to our understanding of resistance politics is about it becoming a praxis in the way we receive and navigate these intersections. And so resistance politics are in a lot of ways what we do together when we are not visible, how we treat each other and what kind of solidarity and accountability do we try to build in preparation of the alternative worldview that we are working with and towards. Yeah, thank you for all of that. I think that you touched on so many important dimensions of 
both what's happening in Lebanon and what's happening globally. And I especially liked your point about failure, but also thinking about a different horizon. And I think that that's something we're seeing across the world around these discussions of abolition as also the presence of something new. Um, And I really like that. Uh, I think also a lot of these themes come up a lot in your work and you've done, you know, so much in terms of engaging with these questions politically, academically, and so on. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the current pandemic has had an effect on the ways in which you work. So, you know, it's obviously kind of had an effect on how we all move, how we all communicate, work, and especially how we might organize. So I I wanted to ask if you could talk a little bit about how, what this has meant for your work and your organizing. Do you see a shift in terms of how the physical and imagined borders operate at this moment, especially in terms of more transnational collective action and struggle? Uh, I think there's definitely a shift in the sense that what we have known about online embodiment is now being brought to the surface in a way that is pronounced. And obviously there's the idea of mobility, but um, I would also like to keep connecting the global pandemic to the economic situation because of course, we would like to move part of our work online, but this has been complicated by different forces that are working against this kind of transnational organizing in different ways. I've spoken a bit about the electricity slash internet blackout, but I have a small small anecdote here. Uh, at the very beginning of the pandemic, when we were under total lockdown, we wanted Eskohal uh, to uh, have a Zoom account so we could hold a lot of our meetings online. And so when I tried to uh, buy an account with the bank card that we had for Kohal, it just would not would not accept it. And so when I called the bank and eventually got a hold of them, what they told me was that actually they are no longer allowing institutional cards that are new, like that are recent, to do any transaction that is international. And so it was impossible for us. We still do not have a Zoom account and we have been relying on uh, solidarity of, you know, our board members or collaborators. That's just one example. Another example is the problem with our emails that we cannot actually, you know, uh, continue uh, uh, subscribing to the G Suite unless, you know, we have somebody doing it from from outside of Lebanon or with an international bank card. And I mean, those are like little day-to-day burdens just to make a point about what is required of us to be able to do this work and move it to the online. And it's also about doing this kind of constant labor into how is it that we can exist in different spaces. And to pick up the conversation on resistance politics and nation states in relation to the global pandemic, nation states do not want us to organize transnationally. It is something that we have seen in the revolution that happened on the street in the sense that suddenly we could not, we were so taken by by what was going on that it was a bit difficult to think transnationally in that moment. But what we need to ask ourselves is what is a context? Is it the geographical confines that the nation state is telling us we need to have? So to give one example, 
what we've seen in terms of Black Lives Matter, and that is resonant and dissonant at the same time with, say, this current situation of migrant domestic workers in Lebanon. It's about who is even allowed to demand worth, dignity, autonomy. And in this sense, once this connection happens, a transnational movement is one that is dangerous to the project of keeping us separate in geographical clusters. So there's the dissonance of experience, but there is so much resonance and similarity of experience as well if we are able to do this transnational shift that I think the online moment is a great opportunity. Great. Thank you for that. And I think those examples also really um, made concrete, actually, the struggles of doing um, this type of work at this particular moment. And I think kind of connected to what you mentioned, I wondered if you could talk um, a, a little bit more about Kohlo, which is this journal that you founded and which I'm sure many would agree agree with me, has been such an important kind of space in which feminists from the region and beyond can reflect on questions around um, feminism, queerness, uh, politics, economics, and, and how they all kind of intersect with one another. And I wondered if you could reflect a bit on it and, and where you see the journal going. And yeah, and also, of course, thank you for creating such an important space and kind of, or opening such an important space? Obviously, we have kind of dreamt of and prepared for this revolutionary moment. I think it was really part of the core vision of the work that we do at Kohal. Um, but maybe I'd like to reflect on this differently now that, you know, this mass revolution protests on the street is something that we have actually lived. So what we did during the revolution was that we um, delayed the issue that was supposed to be published last December. And we did a sort of archiving that was expensive in nature. It was much more open than what you would see normally um, in a Kohal issue. So we opened the platform of Kohal um, to uh, publish whomever felt that they belonged to the, rev belonged to the revolutionary moment from obviously like a perspective of feminist politics. And for us, that was, you know, about the revolutionary project of that moment. It was about understanding, but also thinking, how is it that we exist and organize together in our multitudes, in our different politics and, you know, where we respectively come from in terms of positionality. And so once this was over, suddenly, you know, uh, and also, you know, this kind of, dying out of uh, protests as we have seen them on the street, there was the existential question, quote unquote, of what are we doing when we go about our work? What's next? What we have attempted to do is find a balance between relevance to the political moment and the political project or vision we want to see happen. In a lot of ways, this idea of relevance and always wanting to be following whatever political moment is happening is, of course, I mean, it's very important in terms of the work that we do, but it also means playing the systems game. And maybe what I perceived in the past as distractions from the systems side, I mean, they're actually clear acts of enacting control in a way. And the question of why is there no alternative? For me, it's because we are being deterred 
from organizing in this way. We look at alternatives as things or projects that are big enough to match the magnitude of the system. But what was proven to us during, you know, the revolutionary street revolutionary time is that we cannot match the magnitude of the system because it is an extent that we have come face to face with. But the way we choose to organize and work with each other, to me, is practicing alternatives. And so what we are doing right now at Kohol is working on structure. It's working on a team, so like me with Safa, Hiba, Sabah, in the way we want to see labor conditions enacted. It's the way we want to see, you know, workers, but also people who belong to a certain, you know, imagined community or even political project, how we want to see them treated and how we treat each other. And to me, it's about thinking leadership and collective care. It's about allowing ourselves to dream beyond what we are told is allowed and beyond beyond our own feelings of entrapment. Yeah, thanks for that. And uh, to kind of ask the final question, uh, which is connected to what you've spoken about a little bit already, is whether you can speak a little bit about the process of archiving and in what ways you see online spaces Uh, as archives, if at all? This is a question that has shaped our work in a lot of ways because it was the question of archives, are they external? Is it something that you just put out there? But of course, we have come to the realization that they cannot be divorced from politics, even in the mediation, in terms of who is archiving, but also what is it that we are making available out there? It questions our idea of what a truth is, a truth as an absolute truth, and it changes them into narratives. Like, so what are the multitude of narratives that we want to see archived? And also it's about identity politics and representation, like who is allowed to say what and about what. But ultimately for, for me, archive as, you know, living uh, spaces are also about embracing contradictions and tensions from within our movements so that we are better able to build alternatives that might not match the systems and their magnitude, the way we I have said before, but that might present something that collectively and you know with enough transnational uh, networking and efforts can present uh, a world that we would like to live in someday. Thank you. I think that's such a great note to end on. Um, It's been such a great conversation and uh, I'm so excited to see the work that you'll continue to do. And I really think this was such a rich kind of overview of so many different topics and issues that we're all thinking about today. So I just wanted to say thank you and I'm sure our paths will cross again soon. Thank you so much, Sarah. I'm sure very soon, I hope, (laughs) not just online, but also face to face. Thank you, Sarah and Riwa, for taking the time to speak to us. And thank you for listening to Instant Coffee, your quick fix of everything Middle East. Join us every Friday for a new episode of Instant Coffee, where we interview artists, activists, writers, journalists and more from the region. To learn more about Riwa's work and Kohol, visit the links in the podcast description. 
Don't forget to find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next time.